0: parallel, funnily enough, I would draw would be between Nixon and the left. So Nixon is to the left as Clinton is to the right, which is Nixon, as I kind of touch on in the book, had a very kind of modern liberal domestic policy.
1: Welcome to the Act In Line podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. You just heard Matthew Continetti, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, speaking on his new book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. This book gives readers a clear historical perspective of the conservative movement, from the progressive era to the present. He tells the story of how conservatism began as networks of intellectuals, developing and institutionalizing a vision that grew over time. This book is essential reading for anyone looking to understand what it truly means to be an American conservative. In this episode of Acton Line, Eric Cohn, Acton's Director of Marketing and Communications, sits down with Continetti to discuss the right, and especially where the conservative movement is headed. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.
2: Matthew Continetti is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he is the author of the new book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism, which we'll be discussing today. In 2012, he co-founded the Washington Free Beacon, where he served as editor-in-chief until 2019. A contributing editor at National Review and a columnist for commentary, he has published articles and reviews in the New York Times, Atlantic, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal. He is also author of The K Street Gang and The Persecution of Sarah Palin. He and his family live in Virginia. Matthew Continetti, welcome to Act in Line. Thank you for having me. So for this book, um, you've titled it The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. How do you distinguish those two terms, the the right and conservatism?
0: Uh, well, uh, I, I begin uh, my book by making a, a- a bunch of distinctions that I think are important to keep in mind when we discuss the phenomenon of the American right. Uh, distinction has to be drawn between the Republican Party and conservatism, because they're not the same thing, even though we often confuse them. Um, distinction needs to be drawn between the conservative movement, all of the single issues groups that populate Washington, D.C., Washington, D. all of the grassroots activists out in the country, and the conservative intellectual movement, the groups of writers, um, think tank scholars, who are much fewer in number than the activists, uh, but tend to get more attention because they have the bigger platforms. And then another distinction I make is between conservatism, American conservatism, and the right. And what I would put it is uh, this way. Uh, I think American conservatism is a very unique phenomenon. Uh, the adjective does a lot of the work. And um, a conservative movement, I think, and, and conservatism in the United States really is rooted in the principles of the Declaration of Independence, a belief in the Constitution and the importance of the constitutional structure of our government, as well as the idea that the institutions of the American founding provide um, the structure for uh, valued places where we can live out our lives in ways we choose, such as the family, the church, the neighborhood, civil society. That is not necessarily the, the only view on the right. And the right is a much broader thing in my view, uh, basically composed of all those opposed to the left (laughs) or to even to a liberalism, not only modern liberalism or progressivism, but even classical liberalism, which in my understanding actually uh, has quite a bit of influence on
2: American
0: conservatism.
2: So the... I, that's one of the notes that I made while reading this book is that there is this blurring, uh, particularly that stuck out to me, between the intellectual conservative movement and the intersection that it has with politics. Um, talk about how that goes back and forth over time.
0: Sure. Well, yeah, uh, the The main story of my book, at The Right, is the story of how the intellectuals, the writers, the thinkers – Uh, responded to, interacted with, and influenced American politics over the course of the last hundred years. And so I tell my story through these characters, these writers, and how they were able to either um, comment on the political scene or how they were able to become involved in it, shape it, even in some cases rise to positions of authority within the American government. And what I found in the right, that over the course of the last century, there've been a variety of approaches to this question of the writer or intellectual's commitment or involvement in politics. And when I begin my story, to give you an example, um, the intellectuals that I discuss at the outset, people like Henry Louis Mencken or Albert J. Nock, Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich von Hayek, they really weren't that involved in politics, per se. They were kind of estranged, um, certainly from mainstream American partisan politics. But by the time that we get to um, the Reagan presidency in the 1980s, really through the George W. Bush presidency in the uh, first decade of the 21st century, Writers uh, associated with magazines such as the Public Interest or Commentary Magazine, National Review, later the Weekly Standard Magazine under George W. Bush, are very involved in American politics and in Republican presidential administrations, um, making arguments that shape decision-makers, sometimes becoming decision-makers themselves. I now think that we've entered a period of... uh, a renewed estrangement between many of the intellectuals within American conservatism and also on the right more broadly and actual politics as it's practiced in the United States in the halls of Congress and in um, the previous Republican administration. There's not as much as a connection there. There are many people who feel like they're commenting on the sidelines. That's very similar to the situation at the beginning of my story
2: in the 1920s yeah that that does very clearly stick out that you have this almost feeling of it coming full circle at the end where you end up you know to use the cliche that, you know, if history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes reading the first chapter of your book, normalcy and its discontents about the, you know, the 1920s very much, you know, I, I'm reading through what happened there. Like that sounds familiar. That sounds very familiar. Isolationism, nationalism, um, it all, it all did stick out as being pretty familiar. What, why did you, um, so obviously you have to pick a place to start no matter, you know, if you're going to write a book like this. What led you to pick the the 1920s? Because I I could presume that there is a history, if not of conservatism, at least certainly of the right, that would extend back to the founding of the country. You could trace it back probably as far as you want. What led you to start in the 1920s?
0: Well, uh, a couple of reasons. One is uh, I wanted to tell the prehistory of the conservative movement. So many of the accounts of the conservative movement in the United States begin at the end of the Second World War and then carry on until uh, really either the Reagan administration or the the present day. And in my book, The Right, I wanted to say that there was a prehistory to the history that's normally told, the right prior to World War II that also needed to be included in this story. And so I wanted to kind of widen the view And I settled on the 1920s for a couple reasons. The first is that the 1920s is when we kind of see that progressivism or modern liberalism, whatever you want to call it, is going to have a home in the Democratic Party and not the Republican one. Because prior to the 1920 election in the personage of Teddy Roosevelt, for example, there were Republicans who were quite progressive in their views. But you see in the 1920s, Republicans kind of the glimmers of the more conservative Republican Party rejecting progressivism. Then another reason I wanted to start in the 1920s was exactly the parallels that you mentioned. And that is... um, When I look at the American right today, I see many similarities with the American right in the 1920s, Uh, whether it's in their attitude toward uh, intervention overseas, attitude toward immigration and restricting immigration, the positions on uh, protecting the American economy and international trade, or today it falls under this category of industrial policy, um, we see a similar uh, constitutionalism and uh, nationalism, you mentioned, or uh, patriotism directed toward belief in our political institutions, visible on the right in both periods. And so I thought that pointing out that symmetry would be very helpful for people who uh, may have grown up, say, during the Reagan years or the Bush years, and then come into the Trump years and now the Biden years and say, what is going on with the GOP? <laughs> what you know? What is happening here? I wanted to be able to say, well, just calm down. In truth, it may have been the Reagan Bush years that were the aberration, and the right today, the Republican Party today, looks very much like the right in the Republican Party of about a century ago.
2: This may be a terrible metaphor, but as I read through the entire book, it feels like you have this stew that as you continue to cook it over time, different flavors come out uh, as you continue to taste it. That there, are all the same elements are in there, but as it, uh, the story continues, there are different factions within the right um, that have their own moments of prominence. And I kept thinking that there's, there always seems to be a status quo and people rebelling against the status quo. And what was interesting to me, again, reading from the 1920s to the 2020s, as you tell the story in your book, is how each time those revolutionaries seem to get subsumed into the Borg. They become, again, part of the whole movement. They get their own part of the status and the whole process seems to start again.
0: Right. Or, or they're suppressed. Right. Yes. And they're just kind of they're kicked out and they're kind of held at arm's length.
2: But until until they do start to reassert themselves. Right. So if we look at, you know, one of the most striking things, because uh, I, I was unaware of its reemergence is how, you know, everyone, not everyone. Many people listening to this program will probably know the story of Bill Buckley's excommunication of the John Birch Society. But then, as you see later on, you know, the John Birch Society comes back. It's, you know, in that sense, feels like uh, a a classic horror movie where you think the villain is dead and, oh, no, Jason is still there.
0: Right. I'd say two things. One is uh, another theme of the book is that the right is not monolithic, That they are a host of competing brands of not only rightism, you know, or anti-liberalism or anti-leftism, but brands of American conservatism, different flavors of American conservatism. And uh, they need to be appreciated as distinct persuasions and philosophies. And the second thing is that they're always fighting. (laughs) And this is to your point. They're always fighting. No one is ever really happy with the situation. And there was never this golden age of conservatism, as I've seen written about uh, recently in some places, this idea that, oh, well, even in the Reagan administration, everybody was happy. Everybody was on the same page. Well, maybe there was more of a consensus during the Reagan years than in other times, but there still wasn't a total com- complete consensus. There were many right-wing critics of Ronald Reagan. There are many arguments within the right about the future of the movement. This is the Reagan era, for example, is where the, the chasm between neoconservatism and paleoconservatism really takes shape. So. Uh, the cyclical idea uh, that you mentioned, I think, is, is, is apt. I also think, I, sometimes I think of it in terms of a, a tide, that you kind of have a big swelling up in American history of popular outrage at what government is doing. And then the question becomes, will conservative and Republican elites be able to incorporate that? Feeling that sentiment, and direct it toward constructive ends. And I think, in a few cases in American history, they've been able to do that. I think it's become much harder over the last decade.
2: We talked about the Reagan years and the Bush years being kind of an aberration that uh, not you know. The center of the story, as it is, uh, I think, so often told um, and your your point about, you know, again reading about all of the critics, uh, uh, conservative critics and critics on the right of the Reagan years does really strike you. So I heard someone say recently that um, nostalgia is the longing for something that didn't occur. Uh, and would you hear the stories of the Reagan administration, particularly or the Reagan years, it is very hagiographical it is all the good things and none of the bad things um why do you describe it as kind of uh, as an aberration in some senses and um is it just because of the the outcome-based way we look at things that we view the reagan presidency the majority of american people viewed the reagan years as being successful so we just kind of memory hold the um the tumult that might have also existed around it
0: well, for sure, in fact, just today uh, before we recorded this podcast, I was teaching a session um, to my class at American University on the Reagan years, and I had to explain um, iran contra to the students and uh, that that let me tell you. <laughs> I really earned my pay, uh, which is not <laughs> substantial, from AU by trying to explain Iran-Contra to uh, kids who have no idea what it was because it's been complete that scandal has been completely forgotten. Or also, when we discussed the Reagan years, to, uh, telling uh, students about the nuclear freeze movement at the beginning of the 1980s, the occasion of what was may have been the largest mass protest in American history in New York City. Uh, in defiance of Reagan's deployment of intermediate range nuclear missiles to Western Europe. No one remembers it. No one. Um, so there's one thing is just the uh, the nature of democracies is that we forget. And we have to relearn the, these lessons over and over again. We have to, um, as uh, Nathan Glazer, the neoconservative sociologist put it, we have to remember the answers to these questions of public policy and public philosophy every single generation. With with Reagan, however, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to kind of tell this whole story that doesn't culminate in Reagan, that, that features Reagan prominently, there's no question about that, but doesn't necessarily make him the main character. He's one character in the story I tell, is precisely his unique uniqueness as a political figure it's it's kind of strange one thing is he was able to synthesize populism and conservatism in a way that very few american politicians have ever been able to do another thing was his demeanor is very unusual among american conservatives you know one of the uh kind of forgotten uh protagonists in my story is the Senator Robert Taft, who was the son of William Howard Taft and uh, elected to the Senate in 1938, opponent of FDR's New Deal, opponent of American entry into World War II, early critic of NATO uh, at the beginning of the Cold War, becomes the Senate Majority Leader in 1953 and actually dies not long into his um, majority leadership. Taft ran uh, several times for the Republican nomination, was always unsuccessful in doing so. And as he was the first to admit, it was because he didn't really have much of a personality. He it wasn't very charming figure. If you think of other kind of prominent characters in my story, you know, um, uh, Joseph McCarthy does not come across very well, um, Barry Goldwater uh, has a kind of, uh, almost, uh, negative, uh, charisma, which is, he was very, you know, he was kind of very, uh, astringent and acerbic, uh, but, and that, that made people including me kind of like him. Uh, but at the same time, it didn't attract a mass following to say the least, uh, in the American electorate, Richard Nixon, of course, the brooding, uh, self-obsessed character. Um, and you can go on into people like the two Bushes, um, you know, uh, men who clearly had an inner strength and um, a gentility, but also had a lot of trouble kind of communicating their beliefs uh, to the American public. So it's very rare to have a leader like Reagan who um, is so self-contained and self-confident, and yet charming and humorous, and is able to win such um, uh, uh, popular support on the right. And so I wanted to kind of get into that and say that really, he's, he's so unique, he can sometimes distort our, um, our image of the right. And finally, I'd say, um, in some ways, the Reagan presidency ended up being so successful it kind of reset the field of what American conservatives and the American right would be arguing over. Um, Reagan came in to uh, reinvigorate the American economy and to defeat the Soviet Union. And by uh, the the end of his term, and certainly within a couple of years of his Republican successor's term, uh, those aims uh, had been achieved, uh, and, and there was no question about it. And then the, then, um, we'd have to ask, well, what does the right do next? And so there too, I think in the moment, in the, in the years of confusion that followed Reagan, people had, uh, a renewed appreciation of him. They were overwilling, they were willing to overlook the fights and the criticisms of his time to hold him up as someone to whom the right should aspire to be. Um, but, that, but, but if we, if we look at, at it realistically, we need to see that his rise was not inevitable, that it was contingent. It was on a lot of things, um, and that uh, his term at the time was uh, a success, there's no question, but one that was often
2: qualified and uh, people had a lot of uh, doubts about. Reagan does seem to be very skewing of the conversation. Certainly, I have a lot of appreciation for a big fan of Ronald Reagan. My son is named Reagan. Um, So I have an immense amount of appreciation for the man. But observing what happens after Reagan's time where – you had all these Republican politicians, especially I think in the, uh, the early uh, 2000s into the 2010s, who would do what always struck me as like bad Reagan karaoke, where they would get on stage and they would say the exact same things that Ronald Reagan said rather than doing what I think the, the most a good reading and uh, maybe a charitable reading of what Reagan did, which was to take the principles that he understood and apply them to the problems of the time. And rather than doing that, it kind of uh, this Reaganism stretched out over the time period where the problems changed. But the answers being offered were still just always the same to the point where you had, I can't remember which Republican debate it was, presidential debate, where everybody did like the, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan's, you know, my hero, my hero, my hero. It was everybody wanted to be the next Reagan uh, without recognizing who Reagan was or what he did.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and it gets to this point of um, uh, many critics uh, of the Republican Party today say that its, its policy agenda is really stuck in the late 1970s. Now, what's ironic uh, is that uh, conditions in the country are coming to resemble conditions from the late 1970s so a lot of these answers uh, may have renewed um, validity uh, when you talk about uh you know standing up to to threats from russia or you talk about inflation or you talk about the return of crime uh then suddenly the policy answers that uh were from 40 years ago that seemed very stale in the deck in the decades immediately following reagan um may actually deserve a second look, I think.
2: When you were giving the the history of the personalities to point out how exceptional reagan was you talked about taft not having much of a personality uh you talked about joe mccarthy um you talked about uh barry goldwater and how his kind of you know biting acerbic style um didn't create a a mass movement you talked about the the bushes following reagan and the stateliness that that they had uh You stopped before you got to Donald Trump, who does have, um, certainly he's not exactly like Barry Goldwater, but in terms of that, uh, there are plenty of differences that we could highlight, but stylistically maybe much more like Goldwater than like Reagan. Um, and he was able to create not a national mass movement, but certainly on the right, a mass movement in his favor. Uh, is there's is it something different about the man is it the power of celebrity is it the underlying factors of that moment in time that made it possible is it all of the above some of the above
0: well yeah i think what you say is important um goldwater in a way did start a mass movement he started the conservative movement (laughs) was really born around the draft goldwater uh movement in uh in 1964, and then the the years running up to that. Um, and a similar case could be made to the, between Trump and the Make America Great Again movement. Uh, but it, again, in both cases, in the Goldwater case and in the Trump case, you have these big followings that believe that they're part of movement, but they're not able to get popular support among the electorate in general. Um, so Donald Trump, uh you know uh does figure into the narrative of the right uh, uh he is the uh, concluding president the, the book ends with joe biden's inauguration so um uh, why did trump become president well um he won the republican nomination uh, for a few reasons the primary one in my view is uh president obama and that um, there had been a long-running, uh, simmering tension on the right, dis- a dissatisfaction with the Republican leadership that you could see uh, beginning in the second George W. Bush term uh, with the debates over immigration, with um, the ongoing war in Iraq, Um the fights over uh, the Dubai ports, if you recall that fight, Um, uh, and then, of course, culminating in the bailouts and the financial crisis. There was a feeling of profound disappointment and distrust among Republican grassroots. And then Barack Obama is elected. And Barack Obama uh, has a kind of a very... Um, uh, what do I say, ambivalent attitude toward public opinion. So uh, immediately uh, he continues the bailouts, but he also um, b- b- launches a stimulus which was large at the time. It's nowhere near as large as some of the stimuluses that we've had in recent years. Uh, and he has plans to uh, remake the American healthcare system you know, with Obamacare. And you have the emergence very quickly of the Tea Party, kind of a grassroots, then organized uh, rebellion uh, that's directed not only at Obama Democrats, but also at um, a large part of the institutional Republican Party. And, the, and what uh, animating the Tea Party is a sense that the Republican Party has failed to achieve the the results desired by conservatives. We need new leadership, and we need an outsider, someone from outside the system. And this feeling only intensifies with Obama's uh, second term, where there are several moments during Obama's second term where he uh, relies heavily on bureaucratic um, rulemaking or on executive orders. In in kind of open defiance of the election results, right, in in 2014, for example. In 2010, he presses ahead with Obamacare despite public opposition, despite losing the Massachusetts seat that was once held by Ted Kennedy, uh, with all of the electoral indicators pointing toward a, a big year for Republicans, as it turned out to be in 2010. And then in 2014, after he gets another sh- midterm shellacking, he doubles down on these liberal policies, just infuriating the right and making them willing to embrace a real outsider, who would not, who will oppose Obama, but also not make any of the mistakes that uh, the the grassroots right believed the Republican Party had made over the last, at this point, 16 years. So that's, a, that's what's fueling Trump's rise. And then Trump is aided by the fact that he is a, running in a Republican primary in a multi-candidate field. And he needs only pluralities of the vote in primaries to win all of the delegates. And so Trump is a, is, wins the Republican nomination without winning a majority of the votes cast in the Republican presidential primary in 2016. Uh, But because the field did not consolidate against one opponent, he's able to capture the nomination. And then finally, how does he become president? Well, there too, um, Trump is the most unpopular candidate in the history of the Gallup poll in 2016, but he's running against the second most unpopular candidate in the history of the Gallup poll (laughs) named Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is a much more defined personality in the public eye in 2016 and the public votes for change,
2: change in the form of Donald Trump and they got it. Here's where the story, if we're looking for where it rhymes, it seems to me to rhyme very much with uh, the 1970s and the rise of the new right with again, this desire from the grassroots to repudiate um, the kind of moderate, the moderacy of, uh, Nixon and of Gerald Ford. Um, so while there, there are clearly echoes uh, in modern times of the 1920s where you start the story. I think there are very defined uh, echoes as well of the 1970s. And I I'd, I'd bookmarked a page uh, in here about the rise of the new right that also coincided with the presence of uh, George Wallace on the scene. And I'm to be very clear here not making a comparison between Donald Trump and George Wallace uh, to say that Donald Trump is a racist of the same nature that George Wallace was. But I, I just challenge people to read that section of the book and not think of the parallels between Donald Trump and George Wallace uh, at that time period.
0: Well, and for sure. And, uh, certainly the Wallace of the 1970s was not the Wallace of 1964. Um, by the seventies, he had dropped his explicit racism and, and, uh, support for segregation in, um, favor of a much more broad based repudiation of American elites, uh, that found large audiences, um, uh, throughout the country, in particular in a lot of northern communities uh, where, where white working class voters as, as we call them now, uh, resided. Um, the, what's fascinating what's interesting to me as I re- researched the right and also analyzed and commented on the Trump presidency, is that many of the groups of the so-called new right in the 1970s, uh, who were, as you say, rebelling against uh, establishment Republicanism of the time. Uh, the groups and figures who were integral to that moment, and one that comes to mind, uh, is uh, the grassroots activist Phyllis Schlafly. She, of course, ends up endorsing Trump in 2016, and and so you kind of see again that 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 rhythm or that the. Um, waxing and waning of the tide of populism um over the 40-year period
2: we're jumping around a little bit in the timeline here but um is is a couple things i want to get to in the more recent history uh there's a line that you had in the book about bill clinton and the conservatives at the time that struck out to me that uh you said that especially after 1994, where Clinton had tacked left after being elected, um, is repudiated uh, very clearly in the, you know, the Republican revolution in, in 1994. And Bill Clinton's response to it is he uh, – I, I can't quote it directly. that don't have it bookmarked. But uh, it was essentially that he stole the conservatives' agenda and they never forgave him for it. <laughs> yeah. And again, to thinking about parallels to now – a lot of the issues that Donald Trump championed um, were similar to issues that Bernie Sanders championed, from the perspective of the left. So, in a way, I'm wondering: could could you make a similar claim about Donald Trump that for some of the issues that the left had spent so much time, especially, um, I would say the certainly the the maybe the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, caring about um, Trump tried to, maybe not as effectively in terms of implementing policy as Clinton was, steal their agenda, uh, and they can't forgive him for it.
0: Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of putting it. Um, I think the key issue here is international trade and America's place in the global economy, which is um, something that Bernie Sanders talked about in 2016, and of course Trump uh, talked about it as well, both of them— kind of opponents of, um, the, you know, the so-called liberal international order and the idea of, uh, free trade, uh, free flow of capital and people across borders. Um, they both had that in almost every other respect though. I, I think Trump is unlike Bernie Sanders. <laughs> um, uh, and it, it, the parallel, funnily enough, uh, that I would draw, um, uh, would be between Nixon and the left. So Nixon is to the left as Clinton is to the right, which is, it's uh, Nixon, uh, as I kind of touch on in the book, had a very kind of modern liberal domestic policy. In fact, one of his key domestic policy advisors was the neoconservative Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was still a Democrat. Um, it was under Nixon that some of their first affirmative action programs really expanded. Uh, Nixon with environmental regulation, um, Nixon's foreign policy of detente or coexistence uh, with the Soviet Union, the recognition of red China uh, under, under Nixon. Uh, there too, the left never gave nixon any credit for any of these policies he embarked embarked on just as with clinton the right um was uh, never never satisfied and uh, and the right's assessment of clinton's personality and character was just so overpowering that they couldn't recognize that in many ways the clinton presidency consolidated the reagan presidency that is clinton actually put into practice things that Reagan had only dreamed about. It was Reagan who conceived of NAFTA at the outset of the 1980 campaign, the idea of a North American free trade zone. Clinton actually signs it into law with Republican help. Um, Welfare reform, abolishing aid to families with dependent children, uh, moving welfare to the states and instituting a work requirement is something that the right and Reagan had fought passionately for for decades it happens under clinton um balanced budget right uh, achieved under clinton um now at the cost of some of our defenses for sure um deregulation so all these things happen during the uh, and then also the uh collapse in the crime rate you really see it under clinton Uh, So all of these things that conservatives have been working for for years finally come to fruition in the 1990s, uh, often with the signature of a Democratic president who, after the 1994 election, where Democrats lose the House for the first time in 40 years, Democrats lose the Senate after a period of seven years in control, Uh, Clinton just begins this process he calls triangulation where he is continually trying to steal the thunder of the conservatives, pull the rug out from under House Speaker Newt Gingrich. And he's very successful at it, and it really infuriates Republicans.
2: Well, I, I think that the part of the parallel that I saw was the point you made about how the uh, the right, the conservative and the right's view of Bill Clinton personally and his character overwhelmed almost all other concerns, which I think is... That to me is a clear parallel that you can draw with uh, with Trump and the way that the the left and some of the right and some conservatives view of Trump's character overwhelmed all other considerations.
0: Right. Yes, absolutely. So uh, what I would say, though, is uh, in truth, Trump was a very um, uh, policy conservative president. Um, uh, He didn't actually tack left um, as president, uh, to the degree that Clinton tacked, right. If, if you, I mean, if you look actually, if you look at what Trump achieved during his four years, they too are wish lists, uh, that have been on the Republican policy agenda for decades, tax reform, um, judges in particular, right. Uh, he increased the defense budget. Uh, there was some deregulation, these are things that he opened, uh, the Anwar, the Arctic uh, uh, Wildlife uh, Refuge, to oil exploration. Conservatives have wanted that for 30 years. Um, so you're right that, that in both presidencies, and they actually are similar characters in some respects, um, Clinton and Trump's personal characteristics kind of overwhelmed people's um, assessment of their actual policies.
2: I want to back up to the beginning of the George W. Bush years because this part of it was very helpful for me of – I have to think about George W. Bush as the, the pre-9-11 George W. Bush and the post-9-11 George W. Bush because as with you know, so many th- you know events, dear boy events, um, it changes dramatically after 9-11 as we would expect it to. Uh, but was very clarifying for me having you know a, a very good memory and kind of the beginning of my period of political interest and um, interest in the conservative movement and this kind of uh, thought and philosophy – how you connected um, the compassionate conservatism agenda of George W. Bush to social justice and the social gospel uh, movements. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that influenced um, and the what might have been of a George W. Bush administration that wasn't interrupted by 9-11?
0: Well, uh, I don't think George W. gets a lot of credit for uh, just how substantive his presidency was, that there were ideas at work throughout his presidency, um, and his speeches actually uh, are worth reading as texts, because they're very good at explaining, in sometimes beautiful language, what, are the, what the ideas are that are motivating him to do certain things. He was very, very open about that. And it's not appreciated, because when he wasn't working from a script, he often had trouble. Communicating, right, as we all know and recall if we were around back then. So um, a few things happened for George W. Bush uh, when he wins the presidency um, quite controversially as a result of the uh, Florida recount. Um, Bush uh, had looked at the Clinton years, actually, and he had seen that Clinton had achieved certain things politically that Republicans needed to learn from. Uh, In particular, Clinton had always been able to um, bash Republicans over the head with their uh, opposition to a federal role in education. And so Bush wanted to make education a priority for his presidency. Um, He thought that Uh, like his father, that sometimes conservatism uh, was too angular and could be too easily caricatured as unfeeling. And so he wanted, and this is partly from his identity as an evangelical Christian as well, he wanted to find a way to incorporate churches and social justice organizations into the provision of public goods. Um, That's the real idea behind compassionate conservatism. And uh, he found in the writer, Michael Gerson, who becomes his uh, chief domestic policy advisor and speech writer very early on, beginning in 1999. And th- really uh, for the next eight years, Gerson leaves in 07, the White House. Um, uh, the man who could express all this in very elegant prose and gerson was also is also an evangelical christian and he as you suggest was motivated by this idea that religion was a force for social justice in american history Uh, religion inspired the abolitionists religion inspired the civil rights movement Uh, religion is inspiring the pro-life movement and so they viewed the Bush presidency as an opportunity to kind of reassert the position of religion in public life, to say that religion does have a space in our public life, and also to find ways to incorporate religious organizations and social justice organizations into how we provide um, social benefits. Because this is the conservative part of compassionate conservatism. We've known through the study of history that Government bureaucracy is not the, way, not the best way to do it. So let's try it through these other institutions. And this was really what Bush's presidency was going to be about. And it was about that for the first eight months or so. Uh, and in fact, when you think about the first televised speech Bush gave, the, for his first televised address to the nation, it was in the summer of 2001. The topic was not national security the topic was stem cell research and you can go back and you can look at the speech and it he explains his reasoning he talks about life he talks about why he's going to allow federal funding for certain lines of stem cells but not others that's really where we were we were headed with george w bush a religiously inflected presidency of moderate social reform uh, combined with you know with the more traditional conservative tax cut right which he had passed earlier in the year but nine eleven happens nine eleven changes the world nine eleven changes george w Bush and it turns him into a war president and that that's how he conducted himself for the rest of his tenure
2: It's a good segue into foreign policy do you think foreign policy in the history of the right is a greater locus for, you know, inter-right, inter-conservative squabbling than domestic policy is? I think that's a great question. The way I think of it is if you know someone's foreign
0: policy, you're going to be able to infer their domestic policy pretty well. Not, not, not necessarily the other way around, actually. <laughs> so, so I think foreign policy, uh, since it involves these largest questions— of life and death, of the wealth and health of a nation, different cultures. um, It tends to be where the arguments among the right become the most profound. And so to give an example, I, I spend some time in the book talking about the debate between Francis Fukuyama and Samuel Huntington at the end of the Cold War. Francis Fukuyama writing about the Uh, The phrase we all have heard, the end of history and about the kind of almost uh, the inevitable triumph of liberal democracy worldwide. Samuel Huntington talking about, uh, no, what comes after the Cold War is a clash of civilizations between these uh, civilizational blocks of of nation states. Um, And we need to give more priority to the nation's national character, national culture. You see that battle right there um, play out um, over the over the ensuing decades. You see it today. And then I also talk about another battle between um, the uh, syndicated columnist Charles Krauthammer, who said that with the end of the Cold War, America was now the sole superpower. It was the unipower. It, we were living in a unipolar moment, and America needed to act like it right? And I contrast Krauthammer with Patrick Buchanan, who at the same time is saying, no, it's America first, recalling another character in my story, the right Charles Lindbergh from the pre-war era, uh, but America needs to pull back. And so as so Fukuyama kind of matches on to Krauthammer, Huntington matches on to Buchanan. And so if you look at these thinkers, um, you, you get a real sense of the fissures on the right that develop after the Cold War and that are still uh, wide open today.
2: As I was reading particularly the chapters on uh, the Obama years and the Trump presidency, <clears throat> I still kept thinking to myself, you know, it uh, just seems like it's, it's so much worse now. Um, how much of that is, is any of that true? Um, do you think that it seems worse now or is this just our form of recency bias that if I were of an age where I were reading your descriptions of, uh, or any writer's descriptions of things that happened in the 1920s, you know, only somewhere between one to 10 years after they happened, I similarly would be biased towards, oh, it just seems like it's so much worse now. (laughs)
0: Uh, I don't think we've benefited from uh, very effective leadership uh in our country for for quite a while um, so so that has been worse. Um, I do struggle with this idea of you know is are we uh are conditions in the country today and our political cultural life worse than they were in the late 1960s? early 1970s, and I have to say I don't, I don't have an answer to that question. I will tell you there was much more political violence in late 60s, early 70s than there is today. Now, we have political violence. We have quite disturbing acts of political violence. Um, but um, the frequency with which it happened during that time uh, is rather startling. We did have the summer of 2020. Uh, we had uprisings uh, throughout the country that were violent, that resulted in vandalism, destruction of property. We were having that every summer in the late 1960s. So I think there are some parallels between our time and that time. Um, but I, I And I think we reached the point on January 6, 2021, Where you could say, as Henry Kissinger uh, once said to Richard Nixon in in 1970, uh, "We're reaching a revolutionary situation here, right, Mr. President." Um, So there are some parallels. I don't know whether it's worse or not. Um, I do know that we need to have leaders who want to address, who need, who ought to address it. And address it effectively and really make a priority to to reestablish the stability of our political order. Um, And no
2: one seems very willing to do that. What is libertarians place in all of this? Um, Because I know I don't have to tell you. That amongst libertarians, you'll get all kinds of disagreements, but amongst libertarians, you'll certainly get disagreements about whether or not they should even be classified as on the right. Certainly, the understanding of fusionism puts libertarians coalitionally as part of the right, Um, and there have been plenty of theories floated about how the absence of international communism after the collapse of the Soviet Union removes – I think first the libertarians from that mix because uh, they – well, maybe not first. I don't know. Maybe I'm not right about that. But I think it is it is it it is consensus, maybe wrong consensus, but I'll let you answer, um, that that's where libertarians really start to fall off from the right. So where is, where is libertarians' place in all this?
0: Well, libertarians have always had a kind of testy relationship with uh, American conservatism. Um, and it's really up to the libertarian. To determine, as <laughs> it yes, kind of fitting, it should be the libertarians' choice <laughs> to, uh, as to whether they're part of the conservative movement uh, or not. Um, uh, so I mention of many libertarians in my story. My story is not about the libertarians, so uh, they may find that they uh, get they may feel as though they had they're treated curtly, but um, they are definitely included. Um, you can't tell the story of the American right without mentioning Ludwig von Mises, without mentioning Hayek, without mentioning Milton Friedman. And I mention uh, and discuss at several points in the right, Marie Rothbard, who was a follower of von Mises, um, who uh, was uh, described himself as an anarcho-capitalist. He uh, hated the state, and in particular, he hated the war-making power of the state. And this is why he could never ally with American conservatism, because in the post-World War II moment, American conservatives decided that the primary threat was the Soviet Union. And in order to defeat world communism, we needed a strong state. We needed a permanent defense establishment until the time that communism was defeated. Rothbard did not accept this, and it led to a break between American conservatives and what I call the capital L libertarians, who, uh, whose opposition to uh, the Pentagon and to the Vietnam War leads to uh, almost close to a riot at the uh, Young American for F- Americans for Freedom Convention in 1969. Um, and the libertarians leave because they're not going to support Vietnam. They're not going to support military spending. They won't support the wars of intervention. And this is, again, as we were just saying about how foreign policy really tells you where people are going to end up. Um, This is the break. But there are other libertarians who um, uh, were still principled, but were also willing to act as part of a coalition, right? And so if you look at Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman disagreed with American conservatives on a wide variety of things, Sometimes he liked to be called a radical, other times he liked being called a liberal as in a classical liberal. But if you called him a conservative, eh, sometimes he'd get angry, other times he just like kind of let it roll off his back. He was interested in working in a coalition to achieve his aims, whereas someone like Murray Rothbard, Rothbard was much more factional. And this is a recurring theme in my book The Right as Well, which is how does the right operate? Is it a coalition Do people understand commonality of interest, mutual concern that they will prioritize over their disagreements or is it sectarian and factional where no one wants to work together right now. We're in a sectarian moment in the American right. None of the groups want to work together. They just love hating on each other on Twitter all day. Right. Um, But what that means is that the right is weakened because there's no sense of common purpose. Right. Um, And this, I think that you can see this illustrated in
2: the relationships of libertarians to conservatives. Let's close with two final questions here. When you were researching this book, what surprised you the most. I know you've been teaching classes on the history of conservatism uh, for a while. Um, Was there anything when you were researching it that really stuck out and surprised you uh, as you dove into this history?
0: Um, A a couple of things. I'm surprised about how much of the history uh, is connected to Pat Buchanan, (laughs) for one. Uh, He really is... uh, He shows up a lot. He shows up a lot in my book. And uh, he's, he's written a lot and he's written some good memoirs. So they were good sources for my book. But the truth is his story really kind of tracks with the last 60 years of American conservatism. And uh, his place on the right is actually illustrates uh, what the right is feeling at any given moment, because uh, I saw him just described by some of the members of the um, new right online as a, as a prophet the other day. Whereas if you had asked the same question 20 years earlier, people would say, no, Pat does not belong on the American right. So uh, I was actually surprised at how much I was writing about Pat Buchanan. Um, And as a related thing, I was surprised at how, uh, maybe I shouldn't have been that surprised by this, but um, how fascinating Richard Nixon is as a historical figure. Uh, That too was something I just, I really enjoyed writing the chapters on Nixon, reading Nixon, Reading the memoirs of everyone in the Nixon circle um, is a, just a rich moment in American history. Um, so that was that was kind of surprising to me.
2: I want to read a paragraph from your conclusion for a final question. The tension between populism and elitism that persisted throughout the history of the American right between the years 1920 and 2020 was not going anywhere. At the beginning of the Biden presidency, the populace had the upper hand. In 1993, Irving Kristol had written in The Wall Street Journal that the three, uh, quote, three pillars of conservatism were religion, nationalism and economic growth. Some 30 years later, a fourth pillar had been raised beneath the conservative roof, populism. I want to focus on that new, again, as you mentioned, it's always been there. But it has really come to the fore in the last several years. Uh, considering that I think this is our great – one of the greatest arguments we're having right now about the role of populism within the right, if we divide it into two factions for just a moment here, the populists and the – you know if not anti-populists, the people very skeptical of populism, what's the biggest lesson that you think each of them should take away from the history of the right – to inform how they're thinking about the current moment?
0: Well, I would say the biggest lesson is they need to uh, recognize that they need each other. Um, For conservatives, conservatives will have no opportunities to enact our agenda without populist energy and populist support. Because it's those waves of populism that thrust conservatives into positions of power, whether it's the Reagan presidency, whether it's the so-called Republican revolution in 1994, whether it's the Trump election in 2016. But populists have to recognize, uh, understand and recognize that they need conservatives too. They need, they need conservative elites in order to actually effectively implement and uh, policies that address the concerns of the populists, right? That outrage doesn't get you anywhere. Outrage motivates votes. Outrage can motivate organization and activism. But in terms of actually addressing concretely the problems that are the source of populist discontent, content, outrage is not going to help. You need, you need ideas and you need, art, you need policies. And those policies need to be channeled through institutions and eventually implemented as a program of reform. And so you need elites to do that. So each side, the elites and the populists need each other. But right now, the situation is that there's so much mistrust and, uh, again, so much factionalism that the two halves are kind of severed. And so we'll see what happens with these elections um, in November. Uh, I expect the Republicans to do very well as a result of populist outrage. At, the, at whether it's the schools, whether it's COVID, whether it's inflation or crime. But do the Republican elites who are going to be put into position of authority, do they have the right policies in mind? Do they know what to do? Or are they just going to kind of try to fan the flames of outrage even more? That's really the question that faces the right um, here
2: in uh, 2022. Matthew Continetti is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He is the author of the new book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism that we've been discussing today. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today on Act Online.
0: It's been great. Thank you.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of including the kinds of topics you're interested in most if you have comments feedback or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest you can email our team at producer at acton.org until next week for Acton line I'm Gabriel Jaja